You're listening to a message from Severe Heights. To learn more about us, go to www.severeheights.org. Well, good morning. Like Kari said, my name's Doug. I serve on staff as one of our pastors, and I am so excited to get to spend this time together with you and your family. And we're so thankful you'd let us spend this Sunday morning with you. Um, We are finishing a series today simply called Letters to Live By, and it has been so fun. Uh, If you were here last week, you heard Tyler teach, and he made a statement. He said, this entire series was my idea. And we learned something very important about Tyler in that moment, and it's that he's a liar, okay? (laughs) So if you were here the first week that Tim was gone on his sabbatical, you learned that Jonathan Phillips, our worship leader, he cheats at cards. Um, So when Tim comes back from sabbatical, he says, what'd you learn while I was gone? You can say, well, Tyler's a liar, Jonathan cheats at cards, and our staff need Jesus. And that is, and we're all very glad that Tim is back. Um, You know, as we've been walking through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, you might have noticed that there's some similarities in everything we're teaching. There's sort of similarities in how Paul wrote each one of these letters. He's going to sort of start with a personal introduction He's going to tell them something very important about themselves. Then he's going to tell them something very important about who Jesus is, then what Jesus has done for them, and then how they're supposed to respond to that in their life. And there's a reason that you might see this pattern happening over and over again in everything that he wrote, and then also in how we're teaching it. And it's because of this. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter when you were alive, if you're a follower of Jesus, most of us, we have the same struggles We face the same challenges, and therefore we need the same encouragement. We have the same struggles, we face the same challenges, and we need the same encouragement. And you know, we've been following a simple outline as we kind of showed you how to look through the passage or look through the book, and it's asking you four questions. All right, who wrote it? Why did they write this? What was the purpose? And then, or what was going on, and then how does this apply to our life? So let me see if I can just sort of give you the 30,000-foot view. The guy who wrote this is Paul. He wrote all the other letters that we've looked at. But this one's a little bit different. See, when he wrote to the Galatians and when he wrote to the Ephesians and the Philippians, those were churches he started. Those were churches where he had served for a little while as their pastor. That's not true with the, the church of Colossae or the Colossians. He had never served there. As a matter of fact, we think he had never even met them face to face. But he loved them deeply. And the reason why was one of his best friends, a guy named Epaphras, was their pastor. Uh, I like to think about my children. In my house, both of my kids have friends that are at my house all the time. And those kids, uh, we take care of them. We feed them. We take them when we go out and do outings. Sometimes I even make chore lists and I give their friends chores to do. It's like they're one of my children. That's kind of how Paul felt about Colossae. He's like, I know I'm not your pastor. Epaphras is your pastor, but man, I love you guys. And, And I just need you to know there's some things happening around you that I want you to be aware of because I care about you. So why did he write this? Well, he wrote it because there's some trouble on the horizon. There's a storm brewing. There are a lot of false teachers who are existing in the area around Colossae. And they've already started infecting some of the other churches that are in the near vicinity. And those churches are just eat up with some false teaching that Jesus isn't enough. That what you need to be made right with God is Jesus plus good works. Jesus plus physical actions. Jesus plus a special spiritual experience that's hard to describe. 
And he's saying, hey, listen, you need to know this is what's happening around you. So what does he want for the, Galatian, the, the Colossians? Well, what he wants for the Colossians is he wants to keep them safe and healthy. I, I, I want to give you an illustration. When he wrote to the Galatians, he tells them some really difficult things because they're really sick. And everything he wrote to the Galatians is like an antibiotic. The Galatians needed an antibiotic. The infection had spread through them, and Paul was giving them a shot of spiritual penicillin. He's saying, if if you don't take this, this is going to kill you in your spiritual growth and your spiritual life. Now, this hasn't occurred at the Colossian church yet, okay? At the Colossian church, it's just still on the outskirts, but it's coming. It's almost like everyone around them is sick, and it feels inevitable that they're going to get sick. And Paul says, hey, look, there's some things you can do to boost your immune system. There's some things you can do to prepare yourself and keep yourself healthy from all the things that are making everyone else sick. If Galatians was an antibiotic, Colossians is a probiotic. It's preventative health care. So that moves into how does this apply to our life? Well, remember what I said? No matter when you live, where you lived, or who you are, we all as followers of Jesus have some of the same struggles the same challenges, and we need the same encouragement. So what he wrote to them then still applies and matters to us now. And it matters a lot to us here at Severe Heights because the primary thing that Paul wants for the Colossians is not just to keep them healthy. He wants to help them grow. He wants to help them grow. And growth is such an important part of our DNA here at this church. We love to see people take their next steps the young man you just saw get baptized. I, I just learned this today. Um, that baptism in July, before we even got to August, matches the same. We've had the same amount of baptisms this year as we had all of last year. The entire year. We've already seen God do it already in the first seven months. And our pastor's been gone for a month. It's amazing. We've had three Sundays in the life of our church this year where we didn't see someone baptized. We love to see people take their next steps. We love to help you grow. Uh, As a matter of fact, I pray some simple prayers kind of every Sunday morning when I'm on the way to the church down Alcoa Highway. Now, I pray a lot of prayers when I'm on Alcoa Highway, all right? But the bottom line is there are some simple prayers I, I pray. One of them is, God, do something today. Do something today that only you can do in a way that only you can do it so that when it's all done, only you get the glory. I say, God, if somebody walks into our church on Sunday morning dead, help them leave alive. And I say, God, whatever we do in our services together, help it be for your glory and for your people's good. I might say it this, for your glory and for our growth. I could tell you how important seeing you as a follower of Jesus take your next steps is, but I actually think there's somebody who can do it a little better than me. And I'll say, well, there's a a church over there called Severe Heights. And they make a statement, oh, that big church on Alcoa Highway. And I make a statement, well, kind of, but not really. Like if you go into one of the worship services, it feels that way. But, but the larger it gets, the smaller it has to feel. And at one time it was a smaller church, and it's grown over the years. And they often will follow up with giving me what they think is my job description. I guess your goal is to get a bunch of people coming to Severe Heights, to which I press in and say, well, not really. Our goal isn't to get a bunch of people going to church. Our goal is to help as many people as possible to become more like Jesus. 
I love that clip. That's from a sermon in January when a lot of people were coming back to the church because of their New Year's resolutions and commitments. And they were wanting to start their spiritual growth. And we were trying to affirm in you, we want to help you do that. We don't really care how big our church gets. We care that you're getting better in your life. And the, the darndest thing happens, right? When you help people get better, more people want to be a part. It's, it's special and it's beautiful. But the whole point of this is to help our church, help you as members of the church grow in every facet of what Jesus is calling you to do. How important is growth to the life of a believer? Well, I might say it this way. Growth isn't just about a single defining moment. Growth is something that defines every single moment. Growth isn't just about a single defining moment in your life. It's something that defines every single moment of your life. It impacts how we live, think, and feel in our lives. Now, we're very lucky because the same God who created the physical world and our physical bodies actually created our spiritual self, too. So sometimes we can look at the physical world and we can observe things and we can apply that to ourselves spiritually. Well, if I were going to ask you a question, how do you grow and maintain physical health? How do you grow and maintain physical health? You would probably say there's three fundamental things that have to happen. The first is you have have to have a balanced diet. The second is you have to work out in some way. So calories in, calories out. And third is you have to have a proper amount of rest in your life. Now we can get as complicated. How much rest do you need? How many, you know, macro, micro, we're fat counting, we're Atkins, we're carb, whatever. Okay, we can get into all that. But it really boils down to this. It's a diet, it's working out, and it's rest. Well, the same way that we can apply those three very simple principles to our physical life, there's some spiritual principles that from the book of Colossians, we can apply to our life and go, if I want to grow and be spiritually healthy, these are three things that have to be true in my life. The first one is found in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14. Here's what it says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I just want to break down a few of these words and spend some time here, because this is so important. This word, he has delivered us. Delivered in the actual original language means he has rescued us. The idea is that there was something in our life that was overwhelming us, and that we had no ability to Overwhelm. It was overwhelming me. I couldn't overwhelm it. It was overcoming me. I could not overcome it. And God acted and he stepped in to overwhelm the thing that was overwhelming me. He delivered me. He rescued me. And who did he deliver? Us, followers of Jesus. Those of you who know Jesus in this room, this is what he did, what has been applied to your life. He stepped in and rescued you from what? The domain of darkness. This sounds... That's, that's tough, okay? Let me see if I can give you a way of thinking about domain of darkness. He rescued you from living in a place where death dominated. He rescues us from living in a place where death dominates, either in this life we're in now or our eternity. A place where we can work as hard as we want to try to be right with God on our own, and we can never do it. The best we can do is fail at making ourselves right with God. We need to be rescued to be made right with God. So what did he do? He rescued me. He stepped in to deliver me from a place where death dominated. And what's he do? He transfers us. He transfers his people to the kingdom of his beloved son, to the kingdom of Jesus, or to a kingdom where Jesus 
reigns. And what's that word transfer means? Well, it's the same idea if you have a tree in your yard that is sick, that there aren't enough nutrients in the ground, that the soil it's planted in is not bringing life. It is not cultivating growth. It is not flourishing. You take that tree and you uproot it and you move it to a place with good soil and you set it back in the ground and you let it take root. This is what Jesus did for us. He took us from a place where death was dominating our efforts and he lifts us up and he moves us to a place where Jesus is king, or can I say it this way? To a place where life flourishes and he sets us in the ground. And he says, this is what I'm gonna do for my people through my son. I'm going to rescue them from the place where death dominates and I'm gonna transfer them to the place where life flourishes And in order to do that, redemption has to occur. We have redemption. Redemption means the balance is paid. The scales are tipped. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine you have a house and you get a foreclosure notice. The bank is coming. You can't pay off your notice. You can't pay off your house. You can't even catch up the payments. You're going to lose the house. And at the very last second, someone you don't even know steps in and doesn't just catch up your house payments and put you in the black. They pay your mortgage off. They took the thing that was overwhelming you and they overwhelmed it with what? Their riches. They took the thing that you couldn't overcome, the debt you had to pay, and they overcame it with what? Their wealth. They applied what was theirs to you. That's what Jesus does for his people. He rescues us from being, needing to be made right with God on our own. And he takes it upon himself to make us right with God on his own. And then we are transferred. We're lifted up out of a soil where death dominates. And we're planted into a soil where life flourishes. Our debts are paid. And we have forgiveness of our sin. So what is the first step to being healthy and growing in your life spiritually? Well, the first step is this. You have to invite Jesus in. This moment has to have occurred in your life. And my guess is some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, I've been to church once or twice in my life. I knew he was going to say that. <laughs> I knew he was going to say that. Well, I, you can never be reminded too much of what Jesus did for you. Because what he did for us on this earth is the primary thing we're going to thank him for, for eternity. We can never be reminded too much of what he did for us. Because what he did for us on this earth is the primary thing we're going to thank him for in eternity. We're going to say, Jesus, thank you for living the life I failed to live. Jesus, thank you for dying the death I deserve to die. And Jesus, thank you for conquering death and proving you are who you say you are. And you can do what you say you can do. So I am trusting in you. Step one to being spiritually healthy. Step one to growing is you have to invite Jesus into your life. And if that's something that's never happened, we would love to help you with that today. At the end of our services, we'll have staff over on this side of the the room. We'll also have some staff in the lobby. We'd love to help you take that first step of inviting Jesus in. You know, if I had to summarize all of chapter one for Paul, I think I would say it this way. Paul wants you to understand you were made by Jesus. You were made for Jesus. And you were made to be with Jesus forever. You were made by Jesus for Jesus, to be Jesus, to be with Jesus forever. All right? So if I'm sitting out in the congregation, I usually sit right up there in the top of the stadium seating, and if I'm sitting there, I might think this to myself. Invite Jesus in. Check. I've done that. Can you explain to me why I feel stuck? What's wrong with me? 
I mean, can you explain to me why I've done that, st- that first step, but I feel stuck? What's broken? What's wrong with me? And it might be the second thing that you need to stay spiritually healthy. The second principle to staying spiritually healthy is this. Don't confuse your first step with your only step. A lot of believers really struggle with this. A lot of followers of Jesus really struggle. They take their first step, and it's such a big step, and it's so important that they confuse it and think that was the only step. But that's just not true. We're supposed to take lots of steps after that. That is the first of many steps. Uh, I talk to our student ministry, and sometimes I explain it this way to them. I go, hey, what's the most important birthday? Five's a big one. You go to school. Thirteen's big. 16, 18, 21, 25, 30, 40, 50, 60, can I get a 70, 80, right? Uh, after 40, it's just a blur, really. I mean, it does, they don't matter at that point, okay? But, but the reality is, what's the most important birthday? The first one. Because without the first one, the rest of them don't happen. But does that make it the only important birthday? No. No, there are lots of other important days in your life, lots of other special important moments that need to occur and that you want to experience and see, but they're not going to happen without the first one. So you have to invite Jesus in, step one, but don't confuse your first birthday with the only birthday. Don't confuse your first step with the only step. Look what Paul says to them in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, he's lifted you out of a soil dominated by death, planted you in a soil where life flourishes. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, or so continue to walk in. Have you ever wondered where our college ministry gets the name The Walk? It's from this. Because we want to help college students not just take their first step, but to continue to take their next step in following Jesus. We want them to walk in a relationship with him. So he says to him, I want you to walk or abide in or make your home in me. I want where I start and where you end to be a blur, Doug. That's what Jesus wants. I want where you start and where I end to be blurry, that we're so intertwined together, that we are walking through this thing called your life together. And that means you can't confuse your first step with your only step. And look what he says. When we do this, when we walk, what does he say? We become rooted and built up in him. Go back to what he did. He transferred me, what, from soil dominated by death into soil where life flourishes. What happens when I walk in Jesus? My roots go down and the fruit starts to grow. That's why that first step is so important and why we celebrate not just who Jesus is, but what he's done for us. That's why that's the core of everything we do here at Severe Heights. So if Paul were going to summarize all of Colossians 2, he might say it this way. Our relationship with God starts when we admit we can't fix ourselves. God, I can't do this. I can't make myself right with you. I need you to do it for me, Jesus. My relationship with God starts when I admit I can't fix myself. But my relationship with God grows when I admit I can't lead myself. Man, my relationship with God starts to really take off and flourish and grow when I realize, God, I just can't fix myself. I also can't lead myself. Um, again, trying to think through, what would I be thinking if I was listening and I wasn't the one speaking? I'd probably ask myself, man, why is it so hard to let Jesus direct my steps? Why is it so hard to let him lead me? And the answer is, It might be because I'm in a fight and I don't even know it. 
I'm going to fight and I don't even know it. Because the third thing that we need to have in our life if we're going to be spiritually healthy and grow, we invite Jesus in. We don't confuse our first step with our only step. The third thing is, is we make Jesus king. We're going to make Jesus king. But this is not an easy process. No matter how awesome he is, and no matter how awesome what he did for me was, I still struggle to give him control of my life. Why? Because there is a constant fight for first place in my life. That's true for me. It's true for you. It's true for the Colossians. And Paul's telling them, like, hey, you've got to make sure not only are you walking, but you're making Jesus first place in your life. You know, um, I grew up in Nashville on the lake. Um, we moved here to Knoxville, and one of the first things we did is we bought a boat. And every weekend, as soon as, if we had three hours, we, like, tried to get in the water. And I grew up with a pool. I love going to the river. I love doing anything that has to do with water. And one of the things that you will typically find if you're around me at the water is you'll see one of these. Just a tube, right? You'll see a tube. You might see a, 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 a tube that you pull behind a boat if, if we had it behind our boat. You might see this if we're down on the little river at, at somebody's house. You might see this if we're out on the lake or in a pool. You'll see a tube. And th these tubes here, they're one-seaters, right? There's only one person who, well, that should be on top. Let's just say that, okay? Like, th this is a one-seater uh, vehicle. And the bottom line is, is what happens is I get in this tube, and my dad, when I was a little kid, would get in this tube, and He'll sit on top, and then suddenly things will go eerily quiet. And my 12 and 14-year-old will be planning a sneak attack ambush. Because out of nowhere, I'll be sitting there relaxing, and someone will pop up from underneath and try to what? Flip me over, or they'll pop up and try to pull me down. What they're trying to do is get me out of the tube and take my place. We have a name for this at our house. It's called King of the Mountain. This is what's happening every single day. In our life. There's only one seat. There's only one first place. And it belongs to Jesus. But there's always something fighting to either push him out or tip him over. And I was thinking through the course of 16, 17 years of ministry, lots of people sitting on my couch, lots of coffee and coffee shops with college students, and really taking a look at my own self and asking, what is it that is constantly trying to dethrone Jesus? What is it that's trying to take his place on this tube in my life? What is it that's trying to be king of the mountain? And I boiled it down to three words. Now, I don't care how young you are, how old you are, if you're a man, if you're a woman, I don't care. These three words are pretty universal. Here they are. The first is achievement. Achievement. And I'm going to summarize achievement this way. An address I want for my house, a number I want in my bank account, or a title I want beside my name. An address I want for my home, a number in my account, or a title for my name. One of the things that will happen is Jesus will slow that process down. It will just be too complicated to tithe. It will be too complicated to treat people right and well. It will slow down my progress and my journey. Achievement gets stalled or slowed by Jesus. So therefore, I allow achievement to take his rightful place in my life. The second is approval. Approval of someone who was in my life, they're not there anymore. And I'm still seeking their approval even though I'm a grown adult and I just never heard the attaboy I needed. Approval from someone who is in my life that I'm desperate to be recognized by and to get the promotion or the opportunity that they could just with the power of a word give to me. Or approval for someone who's not even in my life yet, but I desperately want 
in my life because I feel empty without them. So there's achievement, there's approval, and then there's addiction. What is addiction? Well, in general, it's something I allowed into my life that now I can't live my life without. Addiction is something I allow into my life that now I can't live my life without. And you know what all three of these have in common? Me. I'm the common denominator in all three. I'm there for every one of them. They all seem to have me in common. So when I try to think about Jesus is the king of my life, he's the one on the tube, what's trying to flip it out? Well, it's my job, it's my this, it's my that. It's me. The fight for first is not Jesus and everything else. It's Jesus in you. It's Jesus in myself. And what's weird is I couldn't fix myself, so I became a follower of Jesus. But I really struggled to try not to lead myself. And Paul's saying, look, if you want to stay spiritually healthy, if you want to grow and become the people God's calling you to be, you got to invite Jesus in. Don't confuse your first step with your only step. And you got to make Jesus king. So how do we leave here today making Jesus king of our life? Well, I think in Colossians chapter 3, Paul just tells us three things we do that we make Jesus king of our life. Three words. Here's what they are. You ready? There's something you got to seek. There's something you have to stop. And there's something you have to start. If you want Jesus to be king of your life, there's something you seek, something you stop, and something you start. Look at Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2. He says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Okay, where is Jesus? He is in heaven. And who is competing with Jesus in heaven? None. No one. He is a king without equal. He is a king without rival. And what Paul is saying to the Colossian church is if you want to stay healthy, you don't want to get infected, then you make sure Jesus has no rival in your life. You look at what he's going to be like then, and you say, God, help that to be my life now. The problem is, is this. You may have been given a new life, but my guess is you still have old habits. You may have been given a new life, but my guess is you still have some old habits. Like, I want Jesus. I want you to be king. I want to seek you without rival, without equal. And I know you've given me life and you deserve this. But I'm really struggling because this old stuff's coming with me. Well, just know that is a normal part of the Christian's growth process. You know, when we think about Jesus, if you read the Bible at all, you'll read encounters he had with people. And they had life-changing experiences with him. And we like to think what happens is he walks up to somebody in chaos and then all of a sudden their whole life changed and they join like his merry band. And then they're just walking behind him and they're handing out fish and bread to everybody and they're high-fiving. Jesus is here. That's actually not what happened most of the time. Most of the time he reached into somebody's chaos and he said, I'm going to give you new life and you're going to walk it out in your old chaos. Zacchaeus, you've been born again, but you're not going to go with me to Jerusalem. You stay in your town and repair your relationships. The demoniac who lived on the other side of the sea, we like to think he got in the boat with Jesus and came back. That's not what happened. Jesus said, you're healed. Go show yourself to the priest. And he went and made Jesus famous in that area. One of the hardest things about following Jesus in our life is that he gives us new life, but we live it out in our old chaos. We also get new life and we live it out with some old habits. So what does he tell us to do? We got to seek something So we have to stop something. What do we have to stop? Some of these old habits. Look what he says in verse 5. So put to death the sinful earthly things 
that are lurking inside of you. Put to death means stop, kill, mortify. Have them not be a part of your life any longer. And he's going to go on. He's going to give them about 12 or 15 things that he says, these things should not be in your life. And I don't have time to do all of them. I'll just tell you they boil down to three things. There are actions that don't need to be in my life. There are feelings that don't need to be in my life. And there are thoughts that don't need to be in my life. And what is the litmus test for if these things should be in my life? Are they complementary to Jesus or are they competitive with him? Are they complementary to Jesus or are they competitive with him in my life? Because I wrote two statements down. I kind of wrote them for myself and then shared them with some of the staff. And they said, you really ought to put that on the screen. So here's what they are. When I think about how to keep things that are competitive out of my life, here's some statements that I wrote. If it's not going to characterize my life then, it doesn't need to shape my life now. Look, if, if this thing in my life isn't going to characterize my life then, it doesn't need to shape my life now. And the second is this. If I'm not going to take it with me there, it doesn't need to be a part of me here. And if I'm not going to take it with me there, it doesn't need to be a part of me here. I need to put it to death. I need to stop. And that's not easy. But God will walk you through that process. And also being in a good community of other fellow believers will help you walk through that process. So then Paul says, okay, you are struggling because uh, sin is hard. And he's going to tell you something else in that passage. You're going to struggle because sin is not, is not fighting fair. See, sin, look what he says in verse 5. So put to death sinful and earthly things that are lurking where? Within you. Here's the problem. Sin has an inside man. Me. That's why it's so hard. Sin has an inside man. It's ourself. So we look and he says, okay, there's something you seek. There's something you stop. Then he says, hey, but there's also something you start. Look what he says in 3.12. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And he's going to go on and on and give them a list too that says, these are thoughts, feelings, and actions that do need to happen in your life that are complementary to Jesus. They are not competitive with him. And he's going to say, these are things that bring life and get the roots deep and cause flourishing. And he's going to culminate all this. He's going to say, look, if you'll seek Jesus as your king and, if you, and seek him in a way now that he will be then, and you'll stop the things that are competing with him and you'll start the things that are complementary to him, here's what it'll look like. 3 verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. Really what he's saying here is this. This is what it looks like when new life that you've been given begins to take root. It's what makes all of our actions, relationships, and opportunities begin to produce life, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us. It causes us to desire. When we do this, when we seek, we stop, and we start, it causes us to live now like we're going to live then in eternity. As a matter of fact, if I could summarize all of chapter 3 for Paul, here's what I think it would say. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, so we could live now like we're going to live forever. That's what he's telling the Colossians. You want to stay healthy? You want to keep growing? You don't want to get infected? Never forget, Jesus did for you what you can never do for yourself. Never forget that. Never let go of that. But why did he do it? So we could live now like we're going to live forever. 
So we were talking, Jonathan and I, the worship leader, we were talking about how we could close our time together. Because this is sort of a significant day for many of our staff and for many of us. It's the end of summer, it's the end of series, and it's the end of Tim's sabbatical. And we have just so enjoyed this time with you and this time together. So we started thinking, what's the best way we can do this? And we thought the best thing we do is we start with asking you, would you just stand? Would you stand right now? We're going to end by lifting our hearts and our voices and proclaiming some truths. The first is this, is that our Jesus is a king who has no rival. He's a savior who has no equal. And he's a Lord worth living for. The second is we want to remind you and ask the Holy Spirit to refocus you on letting your eternal life shape your earthly life by seeking Jesus above all else, by stopping what competes with him and by starting what complements him. And then finally, we want to ask God to help us this morning and as we leave and move through our week to help our church be a church that shapes the way this city views church by living in a way that proves we believe following Jesus isn't just the best way to live. It's the only way to die. So as we leave this morning, we want to ask, would you sing loud and live even louder one simple statement? All hell, King Jesus.